dinner last night, I was <coughs> asked, you know, why I got involved in translation studies and, and travel writing in the first place. And curiously, the image that came to mind, um, and you see the relationship to Susan in a few minutes, um, was home in Dublin in the, uh, the late 1960s. And uh, we used to have this kind of closed door in, in, in the kitchen. It was, it was like a kind of a, a large box with a, with a lid. And you sort of put the clothes in. And you know, uh, the idea was it was kind of because it eternally rained in my childhood and my youth. Um, this was you know, a solution, uh, an Irish solution to this particular Irish problem of climate. Um, but I remember what the kind of closed door I doubled up as was a kind of uh, a podium uh, for my mother. And I often thought that um, James Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake, uh, River Run Past Adam and Eve, um, was specifically scripted for my mother, who came from the southwest of the country, and uh, loved pontificating on every subject uh, imaginable. Uh, anything that crossed her radar was uh, the subject of uh, minute analysis to the utter bewilderment of my six, seven, and eight-year-old friends who tentatively crept past the closed door <laughs> until they were summoned uh, for their own uh, opinion. But I always remember an expression that my, my mother was a, a native speaker of, uh, of Irish Gaelic, and, and um, so she, my father was, was an English speaker. Um, so the two languages were very much in, in, in the house, so it was a kind of translated house, a polylingual house, a translingual uh, house. But there was a particular expression that she, she used. She was talking about something that happened that was very funny. And she would say, Bajober na for me bath le fada na um, which um, you could loosely translate as uh, I nearly died with the length of laughing. Um, and there are many, many moments uh, with uh, Susan where I nearly died uh, with the length of, of laughing um, because there are many different uh, context places um, that I've, I've, I've met her um, and particularly afterwards, you know, when you're doing that kind of um, the, the, the post-conference um, autopsy um, it was uh, some extremely funny, uh, not to be reprinted or re-uttered uh, moments. Um, but some of the particular, and I was just thinking earlier, you know, when uh, John was talking about kind of local action heroes and so on, um, there was one particular moment, I think it was in Uzbekistan, um, where uh, Susan managed to uh, literally kick a British council official out of the car, um, who was like the uh, honorary consul in Graham Greene's novel, uh, much the worse for drink, um, and being a total nuisance. And um, she kind of, in, in, in true sort of action hero fashion, uh, managed to kind of throw him out of the car, <laughs> and the man rolled away into uh, deserved uh, anonymity. Um, <laughs> But I think what accompanied um, that great feeling, that kind of community of, of, of laughter um, with, with, with Susan, was the sense of um, a kind of delightful and uh, loving uh, interest in, 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 in everything, this kind of omnivorous uh, curiosity that Susan had uh, about things. And that's why, you know, this particular uh, word that I, or phrase that I have in the title of, of um, this afternoon's presentation, um, which taken from the last uh, collection by Derek Walcott, uh, White uh, Egrets, The Perpetual Ideal of Astonishment. And that was very much, I think, uh, Susan's uh, ideal, and that had been perpetually astonished by what life and the world uh, had to uh, offer her. And I think, you know, for somebody like my, myself, uh, when I was starting off as a translation studies uh, scholar, 
in a, in a field um, that was dominated by uh, a fairly grim uh, bunch of kind of transcoding uh, linguists. I mean, linguists have, you know, have now changed as a species, but they're a pretty lethal <laughs> bunch at the time. And uh, I have one frightful memory of one of these conferences, you know, which culminated in the evening of Dutch folk songs. And, uh, and I can only leave your, your imagination to kind of contemplate the true horror of the event. But... Um, and what Susan offered was um, a just, a, just this kind of ex, um, excitement of an opening up of the discipline uh, in so many different uh, ways. And what I want to do um, briefly this afternoon is to sort of follow on that kind of invitation that uh, Susan issued uh, repeatedly over the years and to look at how particular kinds of local sites have been influenced by uh, global uh, movements. And I want to situate this in terms of what Karen Littow um, has recently called uh, a material uh, history of, of, of translation. So I'll be sort of going back in, in time um, to uh, Adlard of Bath, uh, the 12th uh, century scholar and, and translator. And this is an introduction um, to his treatise on the use of the astrolabe, um, where he's got some words for his, his pupil, um, Prince Henry, who will go on to become uh, a future King Henry II. And Adlard, in this preface, says, um, You say that whoever dwells in a house is not worthy of its shelter if he is ignorant of its material and makeup, quantity and quality, position and peculiarity. That if one who is born and raised in the palace of the world should forbear after the age of discretion, to know the reason for so marvellous a beauty, he is unworthy of it, and where it possible, ought to be cast out. So Adlard is instructing his uh, young tutee in the use of an instrument uh, that will radically change the fortunes of the travellers from the Christian West. His treatise itself is the fruit of years of translating from Arabic, and in, in, inadvertently, if you like, is a demonstration of the technical superiority of the Arab world at the, at the time. What is notable is the metaphors that the scholar employs uh, are those of the built environment. We've got house, palace, uh, material, uh, makeup. In other words, uh, Adlard's defense of a new form of maritime technology is couched in the language of an existing technology, the technology of human construction the house or palace which provides uh, shelter. For Adelard, uh, understanding resides in knowing how the world works, and that knowledge is inexpressible outside the language of artefacts. What his translation uh, ultimately uh, does is to change the relationship between his readers and their world, not so much through the words he writes, as through the new instrument he will cause them to use and understand. So human presence in the world, arguably, can only be understood through and in the context of the made objects that mediate uh, human existence. So why are tools then so fundamental to the sense of what it is uh, to be human, and what possible significance can this have uh, for what, how we understand uh, translation? And in this context, I want to uh, invoke briefly um, the writings of uh, a paleoarchaeologist, uh, Timothy uh, Taylor, 
who um, lists off a number of very, very good reasons as to why none of us uh, should be here in the first place. Um, and he starts by saying, our skulls are so large that we risk uh, being stuck and dying even as we're struggling to be born. Um, helped out by a technical team, obstetrician, midwife and a battery of bleeping machines, the unwieldy cranium is followed into the light by a pathetic excuse for a mammalian body, screaming, hairless, and so muscularly feeble that there is no chance of supporting its head properly for months. How did a species in which basic reproduction is so easily fatal and painful, and whose progeny needs several years of adult support, I'd say several decades, looking at my teenage son, um, before they can address themselves, not just evolve, um, but become the dominant species on the, uh, the planet. But of course, not only have uh, humans become the dominant species on the planet, but they, they inhabit almost every conceivable environment, from mountain plateau to however temporarily uh, the sea floor. So then how do these members of the animal uh, kingdom, with their weak eyes, uh, fragile backs, and infant helplessness, come to occupy a position of such preeminence? One answer must reside in what Taylor calls the third system. The first system is, if you like, um, the system of physics and non-biological chemistry. The second system is that of uh, biology uh, and uh, living systems. And the third system is the set of material objects created or shaped by uh, human beings. So evolution for humans, in a sense, is both uh, biological and uh, cultural. If we possess fire, uh, tools, weapons, and clothes, uh, we no longer need massive teeth, uh, claws, and muscles, or a long vegetable-absorbing gut. Um, this, if you like, permits humans then to uh, wrong-foot uh, laws or conventional laws of natural selection, which would dictate the inevitable disappearance of a notably fragile and uh, vulnerable species of the great ape. What emerges, if you like, from this reading of human evolution, the paradoxical survival of the weakest, is that third system dependency leads to a particular symbiosis of the animate and inanimate. The trebling or quadrupling of human brain capacity, which enables the expansion and elaboration of the third system, is itself the, the product of developments in the system uh, itself. Changes in cooking, uh, fermenting and curing allowed for important gains in calorific uh, value, which enabled humans to absorb the high-energy, high-protein foods necessary to power or sustain uh, these uh, large uh, brains. These brains were and are perched on unusually short lengths of, of gut, um, which was the side effect of the switch to upright walking. When we uh, moved from being on all fours to standing up, we lost approximately two-thirds of our gut uh, capacity. So thus, if you like, uh, biology, and uh, I think that this is sometimes compensated for by uh, copious consumption of, of beer, which uh, leads to what uh, the French used to call the, the development of the Cronenberg muscle, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, um, but, so we have uh, biology and uh, techne uh, interacting in a, in a manner that is central to human survival and uh, development. So it is, if you like, this artificial realm um, that insulates us, uh, cures us, and makes up for the deficiencies in our sight, uh, metabolism, 
uh, mobility and uh, memory. So for this reason, when we speak about translation as a human activity, we need to take account of the intrinsic and not simply extrinsic involvement of techne. It is a question of ontology rather than uh, utility. We evolve or are defined by the artefacts that we use. The tools shape us as much as we shape uh, them. In assigning tools this kind of, of importance, um, and the importance, uh, I think, and I think Taylor is right in this one, that they deserve in human uh, evolution, um, it is also, of course, uh, important to contextualize uh, tool uh, use. Um, tools are used by uh, human beings for specific purposes, and these purposes from the provision of food to the transport of infants are predominantly social. One of the difficulties faced by humans once they were erect was they had to transport defenseless infants who were born uh, prematurely uh, in that they could not feed for themselves. Um, they had to transport them and defend them uh, against uh, predators, um, therefore requiring the assistance of adult uh, humans. So bipedalism, the fact of being able to walk on, on two legs, um, greatly enhanced uh, human mobility. The distances that could be covered, if you like, by running or, uh, or, or on foot um, had uh, led to this greatly expanded uh, human uh, mobility. But the resultant pelvic modification in, um, in female humans meant that caring for the bipedal uh, young demanded social cohesion so that the group uh, could protect and defend the young who uh, would transmit, in turn, these patterns of socialization. Uh, in, in other words, as a result of, of, of bipedalism, the actual shape of the, the human pelvis, uh, it changed, um, it, 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 it narrowed. This was to facilitate, um, if you like, displacement on, on, on foot. Um, but that meant that you know, when the child was, 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 was born, um, that it was extremely uh, vulnerable. And therefore, it was important for uh, human groups to sustain this social cohesion so that the young could be protected um, at, at a particular age. In other words, the bipedalism was something that facilitated human mobility, but it also increased the vulnerability of uh, humans, particularly the uh, younger uh, humans. And this, if you like, dictated the necessity of a particular kind of uh, social uh, cohesion. Um, so the need for a social interaction is uh, constant if survival is to be a possibility. The impulse towards uh, social cohesion does not, however, imply um, that human societies are condemned to regimes of uh, exclusive uh, inwardness. Uh, a constant of marriage uh, arrangements in different human communities is that if they do not always stipulate uh, who you should marry, uh, they have very strict rules about who you should not. Um, Marriage rules are generally based, if you like, in an ethnographic sense, on a scalar uh, model, going from, at the one end, uh, a too great proximity. Uh, for example, the taboo on incest in many uh, societies, to, at the other end, uh, an excessive uh, distance. Um, so this is marrying someone from a wholly uh, alien uh, culture. But a, a lot of kind of marital uh, relationships in an ethnographic sense are situated somewhere on uh, what are seen as kind of scalar uh, extremes. Um, so the complex interaction between kinship uh, ties 
And spatial obligations. Spatial obligations, this is basically deciding whose house you will live in, whether you will live in uh, the house of the, uh, the husbands or the wives' uh, parents, uh, mean that the potential to extend the social exists both in group and in spatial terms. In other words, that the kind of the sense of, of mobility, of displacement, is uh, allowed for in terms of, of kinship uh, arrangements, but also in terms of the spatial relationships that are connected to uh, kinship uh, arrangements. Hence the notion of what constitutes the social group is both extended by the nature of marriage uh, arrangements and defined by them. Paradoxically, as the French historian uh, Christian uh, Gratalou argues, uh, prohibition is the flip side of the perpetual need to create uh, links to generate uh, social connectedness. That linking is um, linking the prehistoric necessity of collective childcare to the complex uh, grid of kinship possibilities. Uh, Gratelou uh, argues that between the members of uh, the same societies, um, interaction are constantly uh, necessary in order to ensure the perpetuation of the uh, social uh, link. And an excessive distance um, compromises or interferes with these possibilities of uh, interaction. Uh, in other words, if one element of the society is too far away from the others, there's the possibility of it uh, achieving a kind of a total and absolute uh, autonomy. And so that the, the way in which the social is created is that it's perpetually kind of reconstructed by these uh, arrangements in the society to establish links between members of the, uh, the system. Of course, the risk of prioritising the role of tools, um, and you're probably all thinking this as I was, I was describing um, our, um, the survival of uh, the weaker members of uh, the great ape, um, was you fall into the trap of techno-determinism. Uh, um, and, of course, one of the problems of techno-determinism is that it ignores the profoundly social nature of humans' interaction with each other and the, uh, the world. It is significant, however, from a translation point of view, um, how uh, that sociality has been characterised uh, throughout human history. On the one hand, there is the search for group cohesion, the necessary, if you like, trade-off between uh, bipedal mobility and bipedal survival, um, and on the other, the countless arrangements to extend and diversify the nature of what constitutes uh, the social. So if we see translation um, as a kind of cultural kinship uh, arrangement, a way of complexifying the constitutive relationships of a community, um, this is one way of keeping in focus the abiding necessity of the social link as a context for tool use. A link which uh, I shall try and show, however, briefly, uh, extends, extends globally uh, through different uh, societies. Um, one way of capturing this notion of uh, tool dependence is to invoke uh, the notion of entailment. A classic, if you like, contemporary example of the idea of entailment is the, uh, the motor car. A car needs wheels and fuel, and these entail uh, rubber plantations and oil wells, uh, and complex manufacturing, refining, marketing, and distribution processes. Uh, once all, these, uh, all the things that cars have to be cars are factored in, uh, from metal and tarmac and glass through to traffic police, a licensing uh, bureaucracy, 
test agencies and so on. A bit of a bete noire of mine that I've never been able to pass the driving test in Ireland, but uh, it's one difficult part of, of entailment. Um, and each of these, if you like, comes with its own form of primary and subsidiary uh, entailment. Um, it is clear, if you like, from all of this, um, that the car can exist only uh, within uh, the modern, globalised, industrialised uh, system. The difficulty, if you like, with entailment is that it is implicit rather than explicit, and that for most of the time it is not, if you like, in fact, clear to most people that a car can only exist within a modern, globalised, industrialised uh, system. The system, if you like, is taken for granted. It's a kind of uh, a naturalised given in the contemporary setting. In considering a translation in the context of entailment, it is worth making a distinction between um, what I would like to call primary entailment and uh, what I will call secondary entailment. And to illustrate this, this difference, um, I want to look briefly at the history of probably one of the most famous uh, translation uh, artefacts, um, the uh, Rosetta Stone, which is held in the British Museum in, in, in London. So the Rosetta Stone is uh, a granite derite uh, steel from uh, ancient uh, Egypt, uh, inscribed with uh, a decree issued at Memphis, Egypt, on behalf of King Ptolemy uh, V. So three scripts are used in this uh, decree, the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, Egyptian uh, demotic uh, script, and uh, ancient Greek. Designed to re-establish the rule of Ptolemaic kings over Egypt, the stele was erected after the coronation of King Ptolemy V and was inscribed with a decree which established the divine cult of the new uh, ruler. <coughs> Though the texts in the three scripts diverge, there are substantial similarities uh, between them, similarities that would enable scholars such as Jean-François Champollion and Robert uh, Young to begin to unravel the meanings of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. The decree ends with the uh, instruction that a copy be placed in every temple, inscribed in the language of the gods, or the uh, hieroglyphs, the language of documents, the demotic, and the language of the Greeks, which of course is the language of Ptolemaic government. Though it was difficult to uh, ascertain whether one of these texts was the standard version from which the other two were translated, um, the actual coexistence of these uh, three uh, scripts attest to uh, ancient Egypt as, um, in Emily Apter's words, a uh, translation zone. So in the case of the Rosetta Stone, a primary entailment is the system which allows the style to be created and to exist in a meaningful context. There, uh, these are the tools and processes of extraction which allow the rock to be extracted from a graniterite uh, quarry, the forms of carriage and locomotion that will allow a stele weighing, weighing more than 800 uh, kilos. The Rosetta Stone, which is sort of um, it's partly incomplete, weighs 760 uh, kilos to be brought to the site. There's the built uh, infrastructure, the temples, which are to house uh, the steles, the uh, artisans who will prepare uh, the stone and carve the inscriptions on the uh, surface. So implicit in, uh, their, in the instruction the steles be placed in temples throughout the territory ruled by Ptolemy V, is a whole technical infrastructure, a system of primary entailment, without which his decree would be null and void. 
invisible to everyone and understood by no one. Secondary entailment, on the other hand, is the manner in which the Rosetta Stone becomes integrated into a later process of decipherment and translation, a process that would revolutionise the understanding of the ancient Egyptian world. By this we mean that later descriptions and analyses of life in ancient Egypt would be heavily dependent on the scholarship of Champollion and, and Young and others, which provide, if you like, the translation key to ancient Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs, <coughs> and whose work is distributed through the scholarly and print infrastructures of two competing empires, the British and the French. In other words, at both the original moment of the erection of Ptolemy the V's uh, uh, decree and the subsequent translation of texts carried on on the, carried on the stele, there are implicit systems of entailment that allow these uh, texts to function in multilingual uh, con contexts. Understanding the full force of the Ptolemaic decree entails the material manifestation of a decree in three scripts in particular sites and the existence of a professional class to translate the royal decree into the appropriate scripts, just as understanding ancient Egypt entails the physical dissemination of a translation enterprise undertaken by the scholarly class in 19th century Europe. So in both instances, if you like, translation emerges against the backdrop of entailment, and translation itself becomes a form of entailment, something without which uh, so much else could not uh, happen. Central to this notion uh, of entailment is the control or mastery of, of distance. Um, the domestication and selective breeding of certain animals, such as horses and dromedaries, had significant spatial consequences for the cultures which were able to avail of these techniques. And we know what happens in, in, in Latin America with the arrival of the Spanish and uh, horses. But we've you know, also got to think of the extraordinary spatial revolution that was brought about by the selective breeding uh, of uh, horses, camels, uh, in uh, many parts of uh, Eurasia. Um, indeed, such was the enduring uh, importance of the spatial revolution brought about by the use of, of particular animals that, as David uh, Edgerton has pointed out in his wonderful book, The Shock of the Old uh, Technology and Global History Since 1900, um, Hitler invaded uh, Russia with twice as many horses as Napoleon. Um, there were three times as many steam engines in the 19. 1950s as they were in the 1850s. Uh, the single most important piece of spatial transports technology on the planet is the donkey. Uh, and this remains the case to this day in terms of the, the quantity uh, that is carried and spatial distances that are covered uh, by, this, uh, by this animal. So a changing relationship to, to space is primarily about a changing relationship to proximity and uh, distance. Um, it becomes easier to go uh, further. Going further, however, is not just about breeding the right horse or inventing the perfect machine. The mastery of distance implies an infrastructure which gives effective form to the possibility of a mode of transport, whether that be animal or uh, human. Uh, roads, bridges, ports, and latterly railways, uh, airports, and information superhighways are the essential components of a system of transportation. Covering distance becomes infinitely more problematic 
over a terrain with no road or a computer user with no access to a network. So implicit, if you like, in the form of entailment is that the, is the, uh, the form of entailment is the infrastructure of transport are the twin components of organization and information. Um, the emergence of uh, a postal service in um, the Mongol Empire in the 13th and 14th uh, century um, was very, very heavily dependent on the existence of a more explicitly organized imperial uh, administration. In other words, it wasn't just enough to have uh, the roads, the bridges, and the horses. It was also necessary to have a body which could organize a coherent functioning network uh, over uh, great uh, distances. Uh, organization, however, is only effective if you know what it is you're going to organize. <laughs> and uh, this, unfortunately, as many of you have been involved in university administration, um, <laughs> is one of the crueler truths of uh, academic life. Uh, in other words, it is necessary uh, to know uh, where the roads and bridges and ports are, uh, if they exist, uh, and if they do not, uh, where they need to be built, uh, what the terrain uh, looks like, uh, and who lives uh, close by. So geographical, cultural, and political information is integral to the conquest of uh, distance. So when the Christian West embarks on a course of uh, expansion, translators will be absolutely crucial to the acquisition of uh, Arab cartographical uh, knowledge that informs voyages of conquest and uh, discovery. And this knowledge, of course, itself was the product of organizational and informa informational needs of an Islamic empire that its height covered great uh, physical distances. But the difficulty with mastering distance is that distance may become its own master. And herein lies an anxiety that has centered around translation and technology for centuries and is still very much part of contemporary debates on what is going on on the internet. And this relates to uh, a subject that I want to sort of conclude on, and it's what I would call the ethics of uh, proximity. Valerius Maximus, the first century uh, Roman writer, uh, noted that interpreters placed a distance uh, between the Senate and the power of Greek uh, rhetoric. Um, in other words, that when uh, senators spoke in, uh, in Greek in the Roman Senate and they were interpreted into, into Latin, um, uh, Maximus was concerned that the kind of the power of Greek oratory was diminished by the uh, interpreters. That the interpreters, if you like, in seeking to, over, to master or overcome the distance between Latin and Greek created more distance between speakers and listeners, listeners who were, if you like, distant from the distance from the full force of, of Greek rhetoric. Um, Cicero shared Maximus's unease about the distance created by uh, translation between the audience and the original uh, utterance. But it is the two historians, Polybius and, and Livy, who underline the fraught nature of translation as a means to overcome linguistic and cultural difference. Uh, Polybius in his uh, histories and Livy in his From the Founding of the, uh, the City uh, speak of the calamitous consequences of the mistranslation of a word for the Greek uh, Aetolians in 191 uh, BCE. The Greek word 
pistis and the Latin fides, taken out of context, can mean more or less the same thing, uh, the notion of faith, uh, faith or, or trust. When the Aetolians uh, surrendered uh, into the fides of the Roman people, they did not realise um, that in the specific context of conflict, this meant the unconditional surrender of all one's people uh, goods and uh, lands, which I sometimes think that the European Union and the IMF would probably put the word uh, fides uh, over uh, their institutions, since this seems to be what happens uh, when you make a deal uh, with them. You, you pretty much, it's the unconditional surrender, uh, well, particularly of your public sector, uh, in exchange for the, uh, the lucre that comes uh, from uh, these uh, banks. Um, so, if you like, the distance between uh, languages that have been overcome through the act of translation uh, only revealed the much greater uh, distance between two cultures or peoples in their understanding of what was entailed by particular words in specific contexts. In other words, what the Roman writers are exercised by in an empire whose very existence is predicated on the centrality of organisation and information is whether the techniques and infrastructure of spatial compression um, do not need to be tempered by an ever-vigilant ethics of proximity. Does translation, whose existence attests to the presence of distance, to the emergence of a large multilingual uh, empire, not also act as a kind of an unwitting litmus test for the pitfalls of estrangement? Does the attempt to overcome distance engender more distance? Uh, or is there something more uh, profoundly unsettling about techniques for mastering distance that endanger rather than enhance uh, proximity? Does translation, if you like, capture, like no other practice, the ethico-political consequences of uh, technical advance and commercial uh, expansion? I want to suggest um, one possible answer to these questions uh, might lie in a Venetian translation of uh, a, Latin, a late uh, medieval uh, Latin text, the Navigatio Sancti uh, Brandani, um, which was written um, in the, uh, the 10th uh, century and describes uh, the journey, if you like, of a group of Irish monks uh, to uh, the Blessed Isle, to the uh, Promised uh, Land. Um, this was translated into uh, Venetian in the, uh, the 14th uh, century, in La Navigazione di San Cabranani. Um, and in a recent article uh, on this translation, the scholar uh, Hawkins said that he talks about this, this sort of translation. He said it was an encounter, if you like, between what he calls the monastic Latin of Northern Europe and the bubbling, I don't know where the bubbling came from, the bubbling lingua uh, of the, uh, the Doge, the Romance dialect spoken in the most prosperous harbour of the pre-Columbian Mediterranean. It is also the encounter between the language of a major maritime uh, power uh, and a profoundly religious text conceived mostly as support for a monk's progress towards sanctity. Now, what's interesting about this particular text is the, the Irish were faced, once they converted to Christianity, they were faced with a particular problem. Uh, when they got interested in, if you like, monastic practices, and, and particularly the, the practices of uh, uh, anchoretic monasticism, um, you know, which was that the, 
monasticism, which had grown up in the in the desert and had its kind of natural habitus in in, in, the, in, in the, the desert, you know, how would you translate this into an Irish uh, setting? One of the problems with the eternal rainfall is that creating a desert in Ireland becomes somewhat problematic. So what they did um, was they, if you like, affected a kind of maritime translation that the sea became the wilderness. Um, so that the, if you like, the sort of the, the desert, the, the sandy wastes um, became the, the kind of the treacherous or the perilous wastes of the sea. And finally you came um, to this uh, promised land after all these uh, particular uh, difficulties that you uh, in encountered. What's interesting, however, when we look at the Venetian translation of this text, I mean, why, why did they translate this text in the, uh, the first place? Well, it was partly to try and repatriate something from Western uh, Latin Christianity uh, back to a sort of uh, an Eastern Mediterranean uh, setting. Um, but they were bringing it back to an Eastern Mediterranean setting for a particular reason, is they wanted the heroic enterprise of, of Brendan to be an inspiration uh, for, if you like, the, uh, the traders in, in, in Venice who were going through a hard time. Uh, the Turks were giving them an awful lot of grief. Um, their trade routes uh, were coming under increasing uh, pressure. Um, the uh, Arab uh, world was... Uh, just was ex expanding in, in, in indefinitely. Um, what, what was formerly kind of an easy way of earning money uh, no longer turned out to be the case. So the idea was in the, in the, in the translator's mind that, um, that this would be a, a text that would inspire the Venetians um, to go off on their own perilous journey uh, once uh, again. But of course there was a problem. The problem was that when Brendan, uh, the Irish saint, arrives and, and arrives in the Promised Land, um, there is this sort of, um, sort of Father Ted-like moment where he, they, they sort of arrive there and he, he basically says, well, that's it, Ted. Um, there's, there's one line saying, they arrived there, it looked like a nice place, finis, end of story. Um, and uh, for the uh, Venetian translator, um, this was uh, heresy, but it was also an opportunity. So he interpolates an extraordinary kind of long passage um, where he describes um, the place that they, they come to, the sort of the, the blessed isle, the promised land. Um, just one <coughs> tiny extract. Then we came close to the wood, and there we found trees laden with precious stones, with leaves of silver and gold, and with gemstones on their branches. The other side of the trees seemed to be burning, and there came to our nostrils a fragrance so sweet that we almost fainted. It was like incense, aloes, musk, balsam, amber, uh, rosemary, savon and roses, and like the scent of jasmine. So you can see the, the, the commercial, you know, the, it's, it's already been clocked there, you know, what was likely to be. But for all the flames, we could not see any smoke. We went round to the side where the flames appeared to be, but we saw nothing uh, but uh, trees. So here, if you like, is a land of splendid Venetian commercial uh, opportunity. Um, so what, in fact, we get, if you like, is a text that's covering uh, a great distance. It's been brought, you know, from, uh, say, uh, Christian Latin West to the Christian uh, Eastern uh, Mediterranean. But what it's been used as is a kind of an incentive uh, to send travellers off on further uh, travels, to, to send them to distant lands. So there's a kind of domestication that's going on in the translation, you know, a kind of making proximate of the world that's been described. But in order, if you like, uh, to, to generate 
uh, or to set in train um, a further stretching out over uh, great stretches of, of land. So a kind of a generating of distance uh, through a, a particular use of, of, of proximity and uh, domestication. Um, Samuel Beckett was, uh, used to tell a story um, about a European essay competition. And the subject of the, uh, the essay competition was the camel. And the, uh, so with candidates from different countries were, um, so the uh, French candidate uh, wrote an essay called Le Chameau et l'Amour. Uh, then you had um, the um, German candidate who wrote uh, a very long, serious essay on the camel und die Metaphysique. Uh, <laughs> metaphysique. Uh, and then the, uh, the Irish candidate eventually um, submitted his uh, essay, which was the camel and my struggle for Irish freedom. <laughs> um, so you probably feel, <laughs> after uh, starting uh, with artificial apes, encountering donkeys and dromedaries, and finally ending up in spice trees of the eastern Mediterranean, uh, that we've travelled a long way. But the person, of course, I hold responsible for all of this is Professor Susan Bassett. <laughs> Susan, thank you.